Well, good morning. Yeah, that was pretty good. Good morning. Good morning. Awesome, awesome. Well, um, my name is Kevin Hackett. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Grace Point. And as you can probably imagine, a lot of my energy, a lot of my time and focus is spent on creating a successful student ministry. That's where I devote a lot of my attention. Um, and, that, and that makes sense. Um, and recently, we were kind of surveying the scene, looking out and evaluating, trying to assess you know, how things were going, how we were doing. And we realized, you know, we're probably going to need to make some changes, some small changes and some bigger changes, but we always want to be in the, in the attitude of, of trying to improve. We always want to be trying to make it better. Um, so I had the opportunity to meet with some parents and interact with them, poll some students, uh, come up with, uh, actually invite some new volunteer leaders onto the team and uh, brainstorm some, some ideas for, hey, how can we make this ministry better? And after that brainstorming meeting, I was pretty pumped. I thought, you know, hey, we have a great plan in place. We have some great leaders um, that have gathered together and have shared some really new um, and innovative ideas. And I was pretty much ready to rock, ready to make some changes. Um, and for me, it, as I looked out, as I looked at our plan, I was like, hey, clear enough. Let's go. But then I got an email from one of my friends, uh, someone that was actually present at our brainstorming meeting. And I realized that I had missed something very significant. And I needed so much to hear what was written in that email. Now that email reminded me of a leader that's talked about in the Old Testament. And this morning, we're going to look at that leader's story. Uh, specifically, we're going to get into two testing moments for that leader. And we're going to try and pull out just, just one, one simple practice that it's very easy for us to miss sometimes. Now, we're going to be in the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua is actually about Joshua. Surprise, surprise. Um, Joshua is charged with leading the people of Israel into the promised land, into Canaan. Now, 650 years earlier, God gives Abraham a promise. And he says, and he says this, I am going to make you a great nation. And he starts doing what's necessary to make that plan uh, unfold. Now, part of the plan, which is a little bit curious, is that he takes the people of Israel, um, he leads Abraham with his crew of about 45 people, and he starts growing the nation of Israel in Egypt under slavery. Israel becomes a nation, but a nation of slaves. And for 400 years, that's their identity. And then comes along Moses. God charges Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and back towards the promised land, back towards Canaan, their home. Now Moses almost makes it there. He almost makes it to the promised land, but just before he makes it there, his leadership gets passed on to Joshua. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, with Joshua leading the people 
of Israel. Now, as you can imagine, when Abraham brought the people of Israel into Egypt, there were 45 of them. 400 years later, Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and we're talking more like 2.5 million. So that's going to be a little bit of a difficulty. That's going to be one of the difficulties that Joshua has to face. Wow, there's some logistics when you go from 45 to 2.5 million, and you're trying to lead that many people. Also, the land that Joshua was leading the people into, it was already occupied. There were people already lived there. And I don't know what your experience has been, but I imagine that if I'm living somewhere, I am not really psyched about being displaced from my home. There's another challenge. And then on top of that, we get the Jordan River. We've got to cross the Jordan River with this massive amount of people. And then the first city that we get to is Jericho. It's very familiar to a lot of you here. Jericho and the walls of Jericho stand in front of Joshua and the Israelites from coming back home, from regaining their home, from re-inhabiting the promised land of Canaan. And so what happens, we pick up with Joshua's story here, and he has already He has already crossed the Jordan, miraculously. He has already won the battle at Jericho. The walls have come down with what is more like a religious procession than a military campaign. It's incredible. So two miracles have already happened, and here we find uh, Joshua riding that wave of success. It really appears that nothing can stop the Israelites. Nothing can stop Joshua with his leadership. But then we get to his first test. Test number one. Joshua decides, you know what? Okay, we just defeated, uh, we just defeated Jericho. Now the next city on the chopping block is the city of Ai. So we're going to take that one but we're going to do our due diligence. We're going to spy out the land. So he sends a couple spies. They spy out the land. They bring back a report that is better than anyone could have hoped for. This is what the report comes back as. Not all the army will have to go up against I. Send two or 3,000 men to take it. And do not weary the whole army. For only a few people live there. Piece of cake. Clear enough. We're supposed to take the promised land. Not that many people live there. Let's go. But things aren't always as clear as they appear. And what happens is completely unexpected. I want you to picture, it's almost like a 16th seed UBMC beating a number one seed Virginia in the NCAA tournament. It's that kind of unthinkable. It's like, whoa, it's not only unpredictable, it is very embarrassing. It's a loss where suddenly Israel comes marching in, they're confident, they're like, we're going to win, we're going to take this, There's nothing can stop us, and suddenly they're running with their tails in between their legs, and people lose their lives. 
This is an incredible loss for Joshua and Israel. And Joshua, with the sounds echoing in his head of his people saying, where is God? Where is God? What is going on? He falls on his face. (coughs) And this is what I think he should have done in the first place. But he falls on his face in front of God. And then, this is what's interesting. He starts telling God how it is. Hey, why did you let us lose? What's going on? This is, your, this is your name that's at stake. Your glory and your honor hangs in the balance right now. And you let us lo- lose. Your people, you let us lose. What's going on? <laughs> and I think it's at this point that <laughs> if I were God, I would want to make this quote right here. Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. I worked really hard to get that clip in there because I love that movie and I love that line. I imagine God wanting to say that so bad to Joshua right now. Say, amazing. Everything you just said was wrong. Oh man, I love saying it myself. Um, I might say it again later, but um, anyway, thing, Joshua learns a really uh, a, a big lesson. Things aren't always as clear as they appear. And he learns that, wow, maybe I should have run it by God before I ran into this battle. Maybe I should have conferred with God. See, to this point, Joshua's been listening to God. He's been hearing from God's voice. But prior to this battle, nothing. The Bible mentions nothing about a conversation with God. And so he gets Israel back on track. He, he learns from God that there's some sin in the camp. Some, some stuff needs to be dealt with. He gets up off his face and he starts dealing with that stuff. He starts taking care of what needs to get taken care of. And he gets Israel back on track. And we show up in chapter 8. And chapter 8 is simply a record of all the military victories that Israel wins. Bam, 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 bam. Just, they are suddenly just taking the land. Everything's back on track just as planned. And this is kind of where the Disney movie would end, I think. See, we have our our hero, and he's faced his challenge. He's learned his lesson, and now he's on top again. He's victorious. Everything's back on track. But this is real life. We've got to remember, this isn't just a fairy tale story. This is real events, real people, Real history. And Joshua's learned that conferring with God alone is better than trying to do this thing alone. But real life hits, and here comes test number two. Now, we're going to open up to Joshua chapter 9 here and actually get into, the, get into this text because I think it's Personally, I think it's fascinating in light of what's just happened. Okay, and just to give, get you up to speed, victory, 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 all kinds of victory everywhere. Can, uh, they are taking, uh, the Israelites are taking the land of Canaan, and 
suddenly the Gibeonites show up at Gilgal where Israel and Joshua are camped. And they have brought a small delegation to ask something of Joshua. So let's start in chapter 9, Joshua chapter 9, and we'll go to verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard that Joshua what heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. Okay, so the the Gibeonites, they're it's thought that there are a handful of towns about 10 miles northwest of Jerusalem. That's kind of the location, just to, if, you, if you have a sense of geography for the area. And they've heard the reports. They've heard that, that Israel, that led by Joshua, has taken Jericho, has taken Ai, and has taken a bunch of other neighboring towns. They are, the Gibeonites would be considered locals. But they don't want Joshua or the Israelites to know that. They don't want, to, want them to know that they're locals because God had a very clear and specific plan for those locals, if you will. And they were, to be, they were to be moved out of the area and not to be influential in, uh, in the land of Israel, in the, the land for Israel. And Joshua knows that mixing with the locals is not part of God's plan. There's a lot more that could be said there, but just know that for God's plan, he didn't want the people of Israel to be mixing with the locals. So he asks a question in verse 6. And look at this. He says, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. We have come from a distant country. Make a tri- Well, I just said that they were locals. Why are they saying that they're from a distant country? This is part of their deception. This is part of their ruse to, make, to allow this treaty to go forward. And Joshua, Joshua says, okay, I know I'm not, we're not supposed to be intermingling with the locals, so, well, I'll ask this question. Look at ch- uh, verse 8. But Joshua asked, Who are you? And where do you come from? And in response, the Gibeonites speak about all the victories on the other side of the Jordan. All the victories of God's people, um, particularly about them leading, uh, Moses leading the people out of Egypt. But he doesn't mention anything about Jericho, the Gibeonites don't mention anything about I because that's too close to home. They've got to keep their deception up. They've done their homework. They understand the God of the God that Joshua is following, and they understand his expectations. And here's where, here's where I get completely mind-boggled. Here's the twist in the story that literally jumps out at me and backhands me across the face. When I read this, I couldn't believe it in light of what's just happened. Skip ahead to 14, verse 14. The men of Israel sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. 
the Israelites sampled their provisions, meaning the provisions of the Gibeonites, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. So the Gibeonites, they have their deception in place. They have their old clothes, their tattered um, bags, and their old food. The people sample the food, and they're like, yep, General Joshua, the food is indeed moldy. And they, Joshua does not make inquiry of the Lord. He doesn't confer with the Lord. And he makes a treaty. And let's go down um, to verse 19 because this does have consequences. This treaty does have consequences. Look at verse 19. But all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. Even when they find out that they've been deceived, even when they find out, oh, the Gibeonites, they're, they're our neighbors. They're not from a distant land. They're stuck in a binding contract. Because your word back then was binding. There was no stepping out of it. It had implications for you um, in your place of business, religious implications, and personal implications. An oath was a big deal. And so Israel finds himself stuck in that binding oath. See, the word inquire or um, ask of the Lord is kind of like, uh, if, it's direct, if we directly translate it, it's they did not seek the mouth of the Lord. They did not seek His word. They didn't seek His mind on the issue at hand. The Israelites and Joshua decided not to confer with Him. So Joshua takes another situation at face value, makes a call without conferring. He acts on what appears to be clear. I don't know about you, but this is a lesson that I have to keep on learning personally. Remember the email I was talking about at the beginning? That friend of mine who was bold enough to write to me and our team to make a very significant point and to remind us of something extremely important. This is what he wrote. And a reminder for myself and all of us, this ministry is God's, not ours. We can think and rethink what might be best, but if God is not in it, then we are fighting a losing battle. He will dictate what success looks like in this ministry. That hit me hard because I recognized that, whoa, was I about to take some steps, take some leadership steps into the future without conferring with God? Was I going to run into a battle without running it by God first? I might just have if I didn't have good friends. I didn't have smart people around me. 
And by the grace of God, we were um, able to stay on track. I don't know what it is for you, but for Joshua, when he gave more attention to the battle that was right in front of him, or the choice that was right in front of him, he missed the opportunity to confer with God. He missed the opportunity for what I, I believe is primary in God's mind. Relationship with God. Interaction with Him. And so what's more important for me than just making an isolated decision, conferring with God on one thing, or conferring with God on one specific choice, what's more important for me is that I get into a rhythm of conferring. And that becomes a natural way, a natural flow of life for me. And because of this, I try and capitalize on the times between um, work and home. I try and make sure that I use those minutes, and it's not a a long commute, but I, I try to use those minutes to make sure that I am conferring with God, getting on the same page, assuring that I am ready to be on when I walk into my home. That I don't come into, the, come into my home with an attitude of, okay, my day is done, now I'm just going to veg. But that I come into my home ready to be on, ready to serve my wife and ready to serve my kids. I can't do that as well if I'm not in that regular rhythm of weekly conferring with God. So what is it for you? What is it in your schedule that happens every day that you could easily just schedule in? Oh, here's, here's a time where I can run it by God before I run into the uncertainty of the future. See, how this works out in, in my life in another, in another way is um, just a few... I would say a few months ago, I uh, decided that I was going to make a decision on my own without running it by my wife, Catherine. It's very similar to making a call on my own without running it by God. Okay? Some of you can relate to that a little bit. But for me, I made a purchase. I was like, hey, this is... This is a no-brainer. This is a great sale. doesn't cost that much. No problem. What I forgot was that when Catherine and I got married, very early on, we decided anything around 50 bucks, we talk about it. We don't just pull the trigger on those kind of things. Anything around $50 or above, that's a conversation. But I decided, you know what? I alone can make this call. It's clear enough. I'm going to make this decision. Well, when Catherine found out about that purchase, which, of course, she was going to, um, and I thought she would be cool with it, but she said, hey, don't we usually uh, talk about things like that? I didn't, I didn't even know you made that purchase. That's right around that, that price range that we talked about. And I said, ah, oh, don't worry about it. I mean, look, it was a great deal. It didn't cost that much. No worries. But what I failed to realize was the relational cost. I missed the opportunity to confer with my wife 
it might seem like a small thing. It might seem insignificant. But I missed a chance to interact and discuss something and deepen my understanding of Catherine, deepen our relationship and our knowledge of each other. So what are you facing right now? What are the things that you're facing? What are the battles that you're fighting or the choices that you're making? Maybe some of you are riding that wave of success and everything you touch seems to turn to gold. Nothing can go wrong. Are you going to continue with an I alone attitude? Are you going to confer with God? Maybe some of you are on the other side of that spectrum. You are dealing with significant pain, either emotional or physical or whatever. And you are at the end of your strength and courage. It's unclear what the next step is, and you're pretty much at the point of giving up hope. What will you do? Will you trust in yourself like some would and say, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to battle through this. I'm strong enough. I alone will take care of this. Or are you going to say, you know what? I'm starting to believe that voice in my head that's whispering, you are alone. I'm starting to believe that. I'm starting to lose hope altogether. Or are you going to recognize that God is available for you and that he wants desperately to know you and for you to know him? Are you going to confer with him? See, following Jesus means conferring on a regular basis. It means getting in those rhythms that are natural, that fit into your daily schedule that's already in place. It's not going to require a lot of reworking. It's just going to require a little bit of practice. So that the battles that we fight, the choices that we make actually count. Because they're the battles that God's fighting. They're the choices that God's already made. And I want you to think this morning, I want you to be reminded this morning that God already fought the most important battle that can ever be fought. He already made the choice that is the most significant choice that any, anyone could ever make. He has fought and won the battle over sin. The sin that once separated us. While we were yet sinners, He sent His Son to die for us. He made the choice to willingly send Jesus Christ to hang on a cross so that we could be rightly related with Him again. The reason the door is open for us to communicate with God, to confer with God without any fear, is because Jesus opened the door when He opened His arms on the cross. So I think um, sometimes we're tempted to live by this mantra right here. 
And this says if you can't read it. God wants you to do great things for Him. God wants you to do great things for Him. And I think as we read Joshua's story, we could come away with this statement as well. We could say, hey, God wanted to do great things. God wanted Joshua to do great things for him. Easy. But I think if we understand who God is and the battles that he's fighting and the choices that he's made on our behalf, this is a little bit more appropriate. God wants you. What an incredible reality. God just wants you. Yeah, He's going to do great things through you. He has the power to do whatever He wants. But He sent His Son to die because He wants you. He wants to know you. And He wants to be known by you. Imagine... Imagine if we traded I alone for God alone. Conferring with God means we don't have to fight and choose on our own. I hope you'll choose God alone. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you for good friends.